Hey everybody, welcome back to Human Reaction. Today we are excited to welcome a special guest for this episode, Joseph Solis Mullen. Joseph is a political scientist, economist, PhD student, and graduate of Spring Arbor University and the University of Illinois. His writing can be found at the Libertarian Institute, the Mises Institute, the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics, and many more esteemed outlets. His book, which is the subject of our conversation today, The Fake China Threat and Its Very Real Danger, was published by the Libertarian Institute and released in 2023. And it is available now everywhere books are sold. Joseph, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your background and what got you interested in this topic? Uh, well, I'm an economist and political scientist at the Libertarian Institute. I'm also a professor of history here in Michigan, which is where I'm from and where I'm coming to you now from. Uh, China. China has uh, has increasingly become a topic of great importance and great interest to uh, to Americans. And uh, it seemed to me uh, several years ago that the debate surrounding China, the conversation, if you will, surrounding China was very one-sided. Very one-sided. You could find any number of books about how scary and about to take over the world China was, uh, but you couldn't find any books that seemed to raise general objections to such a thesis, things like demography, geography, economics, anything like that. Mm. And so uh, I wrote an article for the uh, for the Mises Institute where I was writing at the time. Uh, I was doing uh, my first or second master's at the time. I don't particularly recall, but uh, the article wound up uh, really taking off. Uh, a lot of people were interested to uh, to hear more about this. They hadn't they hadn't heard an argument that well, really, China's going to have trouble just kind of holding together, and that you know there's no threat to the United States at all. Interesting. Tell me more. And so uh, I received several requests for uh, for articles. Uh, if you Google me, you'll find countless articles, uh, most of them about China. It wasn't something I set out looking to study. Uh, my specialty is actually in, in 19th century European history, actually. Mm. Uh, but <laughs> that's the way things go. Uh, I, I was always interested in, in the world and was always reading. And so... Uh, it wasn't exactly uh, as though I were was embarking on totally foreign uh, soil, if you will. Uh, several years ago when I began studying this topic, I knew quite a bit about China as it was. And actually, I teach I teach a class on, on Chinese history, actually. So I guess I should say that. I, I guess I do know <laughs> a lot about it, actually. More than the average um, bear. But I, just, right? I wouldn't say I don't have like a PhD. I'm not a sinologist in right. in like specifically Chinese studies, but um, you can take my word for, for what you find in the book. And you don't even have to because I include so many footnotes. Anything that I say at all that strikes anyone as remotely uh, odd or controversial maybe or contrary to what they've been told, I always put a footnote. I always put a footnote there. So I think a lot of people would find it odd that uh, you know there are contrary views to the fact that China isn't a threat to the United States. And you mentioned some of those things, demography and others, like what are the primary reasons why you would dispute the theory that China is a threat to the U.S.? Well, for, let's let's start with just basic geography. We are separated from China by an entire, the largest ocean, actually, in the world, uh, an ocean which is entirely controlled by the U.S. Navy. Chinese fleet couldn't get anywhere near the United States. It's just not possible. They, they, the, the idea that they will successfully invade and take over Taiwan 
in the event the United States chose to try and intervene along with Japan and the rest of its allies is is, is by by no means clear. It's it's it would be a dicey proposition. It seems increasingly clear as the years go on and China builds up more and more local military capacity that they will be able to act aggressively in their region if they wanted to. And Taiwan is only 80 miles off the coast. But this is a very different proposition from talking about threatening America thousands and thousands of miles away over waters that the United States overwhelmingly dominates. The Chinese Navy, you've read the reports, it's the largest Navy in the world now. Yeah, in terms of overall ships, which are tiny, Mm. right? I mean, no one would say if the Iranians had a million of their tiny little fiberglass speedboats that they're now the most powerful navy in the world. Mm. You'd say they're the biggest, but in that case, it's a it's an entirely green water navy. That is, it's a it's a near shore navy, and China's navy is still overwhelmingly green water. They're building up blue water naval capacity, but it's by no means a given that they will continue to do that. Particularly if China's economic growth continues to to slow. People probably saw recently that it grew 5.5% this last year. And if you lived in the United States and you weren't familiar with emerging market growth rates, you might think, oh, wow, 5.5%, we'd kill for that. Mm-hmm. In terms of emerging market growth rates, that's, that's very, very low. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's, a, that's a fraction of what China was growing at even a decade, decade and a half ago. Half, uh, a third. So China is, is graying rapidly as well. We're in a bit of a danger period right now simply because of the high levels of youth unemployment. And China has a very um, imbalanced population due to um, things like selective sex abortion, which was prompted by, by the CCP's efforts at social engineering. Things like uh, the one-child policy. Uh, so people were aborting a lot of, of, of women, a lot of female babies. And so you have a, a, a surfeit, uh, an excess, if you will, of, of young men at this point. Uh, and uh, youth unemployment, as I said, is getting higher. They can't find a job. They can't find a girlfriend. That's not a very happy demographic to have. So China's internal situation could get fraught, in which case there's always the temptation. Every uh, leader always has that temptation. Every government always has that that temptation to try and solve domestic difficulties with uh, adventure abroad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that it's their preference. If you read uh, the security studies literature in China, what you find is there is a, a sense of real American declinism that pervades the literature and which has developed over the past decade, decade and a half, that they view America as temporary, temporarily here. And if you think about Chinese history and Xi Jinping in particular has really worked to connect the current regime to the the dozens of other dynasties that preceded it and to kind of say, look, for thousands of years we were here and it's only in the last 150, 200 years that the, the British and the Americans and stuff have shown up and started honing in on our action and trying to dominate us. Eventually, though, they'll be gone. America is bankrupting itself. Uh, by the end of this year now, by the end of this year, we are projected to spend more on servicing our national debt than on defense. Mm. If you go back, oh gosh, 10 years ago, they said, ah, that probably will happen at some point in the 2030s. And then a few years ago, they said, ah, maybe by 2029. Now it's going to happen by the end of this year. Uh, New Heritage Foundation just uh, report just showed that. So this is not sustainable. This is not sustainable. Spending a trillion dollars a year on the military plus another trillion dollars on on servicing the debt, 
um, apart from everything else that's going on in the world, it just doesn't seem like this is going to be financially sustainable over the long term for the American empire to continue to project the kind of force that it does overseas, even if you assume politically that the United States population is willing to tolerate that, which it's not entirely clear that they are. So thankfully, China has no interest in trying to invade the United States. The United States is one of its biggest markets. It would like to have better relations with the United States so that they can uh, send their things here because that's what keeps the CCP in power. That's what keeps them from having to hold things like elections is because they've done such a good job raising the standard of living in China. Uh, Back in uh, 1999, uh, prior to joining the WTO, prior to becoming the workshop of the world, China's uh, annual uh, uh, GDP per capita, GDP per capita, was less than $1,000 person. It was about $800 a person per year. Now, it's 10 times that amount. You wouldn't be clamoring for a new government either right. if your income over the last 25 years had gone up by a, you know, a whole factor mm-hmm. of 10. You wouldn't care who was in charge either. And that's kind of the, the whole deal here. And so when you have... Um, increasingly deteriorating relationships, things like tariffs. Trump said recently, uh, or he was quoted as saying, yeah, maybe tariffs as high as 60% on Chinese goods. Now, don't get me wrong. Those are tariffs that the American people will pay. Chinese companies will take some of, will eat some of it. And I don't want to go into like a whole microeconomic breakdown of who who will pay exactly how much, but those costs are going to be passed on to the American in large part, uh, in, in, in terms of like granting more market power to domestic firms who will raise their prices because there's less competition, et cetera, et cetera. Very basic stuff. Joseph, um, I'm, I'm curious on this topic, Yeah, you know, because you mentioned China sees America uh, in decline, but then you mentioned how interconnected these economies are. Do you think that that issue is something that, that the Chinese see as a benefit to their dominance and power, or is that a risk to their economy? Because obviously we've seen even this week, you know, some fractures showing up in the, uh, you know, in some of the Chinese markets, you know, with Evergrande uh, going into default, the largest real estate developer in China. Is this a benefit to them? Do they see it that way or is it a risk? The United States ceasing to militarily dominate its immediate environs is viewed as a plus. It's viewed as a plus. The South China Sea The Chinese, back uh, about 15 years ago, had asked that it just be demilitarized. And the Obama administration went the other direction and said no. And so the Chinese began aggressively trying to island build and things like that. You can read about that. The Scarborough Shoals, Spratly Islands, etc. So, on the one hand, the Chinese would love for the Americans to not be in the South and East China Sea. On the one hand. On the other hand, they don't want the American economy to take a nosedive or, or something like that, or for the Americans to default on their national debt or something, China holds, you know, a good deal of, of, uh, of, of debt itself. Um, so no, they're, they are, they're very mutually interdependent. And again, it's, it's, they would like to have a condominium with the United States in which the United States simply acknowledges that China is going to not always follow America's lead. And this is a problem that Washington has is that if you are not willing to cede certain prerogatives to Washington, they're just going to have an adversarial relationship with you. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, Iran. Iran is a country that, why are we still beefing with Iran? Because 40 years ago, 50 years ago, they chucked out one of our favorite dictators. Why are we still waging economic war on Cuba? Because 80 years ago, they took out one of our favorite dictators. I mean, it's... Look at Venezuela, right? Um, So it's China is just not. But the problem is China is too big 
too important to the world, to the future of humanity, uh, to have the United States and China um, having an adversarial relationship. I mean, it is a lose-lose. We are all going to be much poorer as a result if we aren't all a lot deader. So best case scenario, we all get a lot poorer if things go down this road. Um, we, those of you who grew up in sort of the halcyon days, like if you were born in the late 1980s and lived through the 1990s, when the cost of everything was going down, inflation was low, interest rates were low, that was all because globalization was shifting into high gear. And we've been in full speed reverse of that now for quite some time. And we don't have to. Like, it's just a choice. It's just a set of policy choices that are being made. Mm -hmm. And Washington is very clear on this. The threat China poses, and this comes directly from the mouth of Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State under Trump, as legit, as official as it can be, quoted by Bob Woodward, again, as official as it can be, what China threatens is the total U.S. naval domination of the Pacific right up to the shores of China. Like General MacArthur said, Taiwan is like a big floating unsinkable aircraft right off China's coast. It's cool to have it. It's cool to have it. And Nixon had to go behind the State Department and military's back to open with China because they were never going to allow it to happen. They didn't want to be friends with China. And Nixon and Kissinger's policy, therefore, had to be executed in secret. It's why Kissinger had to be so secretive and go through Pakistan. It's, that's how Pakistan wound up with nukes, which then later is why we helped India get nukes. But that's all going you know, kind of <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> there. The next books you're going to write, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. That's just to show you how attempts to control the world by Washington have very bad uh, secondary and third order impacts that it's just hard to predict mm. how when the state, especially a state like the United States that's so powerful, when it takes an action, it is impossible to predict how that's going to impact events long term down the road. Mm. And uh, it hasn't made us safer and it hasn't made us richer. And so that's why my preferred policy is that we stop. And so I wrote this book, The Fake China Threat and It's Very Real Danger, to illustrate why America is under no, no danger of China. China doesn't want to rule the world, quote unquote. It couldn't anyway, even if it wanted to. And the danger is that much like the run-up to World War I, you get this complex system of interlocking incentive structures and forces that gradually just escape the control of governments and lead to a horrifying war. The, the corporate press always wants to paint everyone as Hitler because then it makes it impossible really for you to disagree with whatever they want to do. But really, we're in a, in a Thucydian dynamic here that is very reminiscent of what happened in the run-up to World War I. Uh, with 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 England and with Germany, and this is my specialty, so I do feel comfortable talking about this uh, with no caveats. Um, the danger is very real, and the danger is that Washington will not grant any amount of room to them, and a lot of it for domestic political purposes too, right? Um, the Taiwan lobby is very active in Washington. There's deep roots that go back there. The military likes having it, so there there are real problems. We saw this with Trump. If Trump said something nice about Vladimir Putin, while he was on the campaign trail, the next thing you know, there's all these op-eds in the major papers accusing him of being a Russian asset. Mm -hmm. And things got so serious that parts of the national security establishment tried to tra tried to frame him for treason. So, I mean, it's not like there are no consequences for, for, as a politician, pushing back on this stuff. Whereas if you just go with the flow, there's nothing but benefits. So, right, again, right. just bad incentive structures. If you are a small business owner looking for exponential growth, you have to connect with Adam Thune at Intellectual Patriots. He will revolutionize your business game and help you get to the next level. Adam can streamline your business practices and advertising strategies to improve your bottom line. 
His expertise in data engineering means he can build you the systems you need to collect and analyze market data. His mission is to provide you with invaluable insights to fuel your success. From grant writing and business proposals to digital systems integrations, even AI management, Intellectual Patriots is a one-stop shop for cutting-edge solutions. Don't wait another second. Visit intelpatriots.com to learn more. That's I-N-T-E-L patriots.com. And that's what was interesting. You, you, it's it's more than just that the China fake uh, threat is fake, but you also make the case that the danger is real despite it being fake because the fakeness creates a more dangerous environment. Can you kind of ex- unpack that case? Yes. Uh, the, fa- the fact that China doesn't pose a threat, right? That's So it's, it's fake. It's fake. Unless you believe that it's a real threat to the United States, that, that, that if we can't sail warships right up off the coast of China, if we can't put special operations personnel on little offshore islands feet away from China, that was what was reported this week on Kinmen Island. Find that on a map for me. Mm. We're putting military trainers on these tiny little islands that Taiwan claims as its own, but which are a stone's throw away from the mainland now. If you feel like us not having troops there is a threat to our security, then okay. All right. The China threat's so real. But if, like me, you believe that China is no danger to the the United States at all uh, and that that element of the threat is totally fake, the real danger is that by acting as though the danger is real, you take a series of steps which make confrontation increasingly likely. Mm. And especially in a conflict over Taiwan, the Chinese are at a point now where if a if a fight, let's set everything else aside, let's set a, aside things like sanctions or anything like that. Let's just say in a, in a straight up conventional fight, no nukes, nothing like that, it is more likely than not that China would win because they have invested in an area denial capacity that makes it virtually impossible for any of our ships to even get anywhere near Taiwan at all in the event of a conflict. Now, China, again, mainland China does not want to invade Taiwan. Taiwan has some very important uh, chip manufacturing plants there that China is very dependent upon. China and Taiwan, are, are they're the major trading partners. Like, the amount of trade Taiwan does with the rest of the world compared with China is small. So, like, no one wants a war there. And again, the, the thinking in mainland Chinese circles is that Gradually, over time, American power will recede, our power will grow, it will just be a matter of time before Taiwan just kind of falls into our lap like a ripe apple and we're sitting under the tree. Mm. So they're, being, they're willing to be patient. And, uh, you know, the, I, I link a, a study from the U.S., uh, I think it was the War College, but it's called the Broken, the Broken Nest Strategy, where they basically come out right out and say it. If Taiwan were to come under attack, we would just bomb these chip facilities anyway. And so what you have going on here is now the United States is subsidizing the building of these facilities here in the United States so that if they provoke a conflict over Taiwan and Xi Jinping feels like he has to do something, they can just blow those up and it only hurts China, Mm. whereas, uh, you know, Americans can sell their smartphones and stuff like that and their missiles. Um, And this is very, very important because... Xi Jinping can't look weak. Like he he is built up this uh, he has he's thrived on building up this idea of Chinese nationalism of a nation revitalized, ready to take its seat at the first table. Well, if you're a, at the a seat at the table, all of a sudden national pride becomes an issue. And if America is continually disrespecting you and you won't do anything, right? How did Khrushchev get removed from power? 
he backed down from Kennedy over the Cuba Missile Crisis, mm. right? Some would say that it was because he provoked the, the crisis in the first place, but it's not entirely clear to this day. But he was definitely removed after how he handled that. Well, it's a good example, so, right? Because America, you know, the, 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 the origin, Americans don't know the origin of the Cuban Missile Crisis. They think it just happened when the <laughs> Russians just out of nowhere decided to put nukes in Cuba. They have no idea that we put Jupiter missiles in Turkey first. Right, that it was a response to something America did. And I think a lot of these conflicts with China are the same way, right? Americans know that, oh, they yeah. flew a jet really close to one of our jets, but they don't know that we got a, you know, a bunch of troops five, mile, you know, five miles off the, off the coast of China. Right. They don't, they it's, don't, it's, they're it's aware of the time slice. Go ahead. Yeah. Yes, it, it really matters about the framing. It matters how issues are framed and how they're presented because, I mean, mo- most Americans are, are very busy. Very few Americans are reading State Department, you know, those tiny little statements that come out. The the, depend, the Defense Department issues a tiny little statement that, like, one of our submarines was poking around off the coast of China and bumped into something the other day. Like, the Chinese are very aware of that, though. And they blare that stuff out. But here in America, it's very minimized. Mm. They keep it very blurry. They would love to say nothing about it if they could, but technically speaking, you know, for, for transparency purposes, they do issue these tiny statements. But, like, they're not amplified in the press. They're not picked up in the press. So unless you read something like antiwar.com or you read the Libertarian Institute, you're never going to hear about these things. And all of a sudden, what you're going to read on the front page of the New York Times is, Chinese jet intercepts American jet and almost causes it to crash and you're immediately outraged, right? Mm -hmm. How dare they do that, Mm -hmm. you know? And most people don't really read much beyond the headline or the first paragraph. Buried later in the article is, well, this happened in some disputed waters not far from, you know, China itself. You know, they make it sound like it happened off the coast of San Diego or something like that. No, it didn't, though. And uh, strategic empathy. This is one of the things I'm trying to really foster in my talks as I go around promoting the book and and things of that nature is, look, just put yourself in that position or imagine that the Chinese are behaving this way towards us, right? Imagine that the Chinese are sailing destroyers and carrier battle groups right off the American coast, telling the Cubans, hey, we're going to send some military advisors and stuff and we're going to arm you to the teeth, right? Just in case America tries to invade you again. We're going to give you a bunch of anti-ship missile capabilities and, you know, we'll come, we, maybe we'll even come help you if America tries to fight you. Americans would lose their minds. Mm-hmm. Americans would lose their minds, but everyone else is just supposed to take it. And in part, this is because so many people grew up in this very triumphalist era of America's the most dominant power ever. History is over. We won. And anything else is just totally unacceptable. And this is particularly pernicious in Washington. Because all these quote-unquote educated people learned that we won the Cold War. And how did we do it? By being tougher. By being tougher. By staring them down. By never blinking. By building more and more and more weapons and threatening them all the time. That's not what happened. That wasn't what happened at all. But if you look at who donates money to these schools, who donates money to these think tanks, who these think tanks hire, it's not a mystery. It's not a mystery that the arms industry wants to perpetuate the idea that, yes, it was having all these arms that helped us win the Cold War. Mm-hmm. No, it wasn't. They just called it off. Gorbachev and Reagan called it off. And the only reason the whole we won the Cold War thing became a thing is because George H.W. Bush later, three years later, actually, needed something to run on in the run-up to the election. And his ratings were really taking a, taking a dive because this is kind of esoteric, but like the economy was doing poorly. He had been doing great after the first Gulf War. But the economy started taking a dive, and so he gives this speech saying, ah, yeah, and we won the Cold War, too. And uh, and that just kind of entered the mythology of it. And, of course, with the Cuban Missile Crisis, 
for, for 20, 30 years, it wasn't acknowledged that we took the Jupiter missiles out of Turkey or even that they were there to begin with. Mm-hmm. That was part of the deal was it had to be kept secret. So, but again, it's 20, 30 years later, Americans just aren't paying that much attention because most of this stuff is totally peripheral to their lives. America is a totally self-sufficient island. Like, it doesn't matter what's going on in, in Azerbaijan, right? Nagorno-Karabakh, what's that? Doesn't matter. Who cares? Right. Right? And it really doesn't for Americans. If you live in that region, it definitely matters. And if you live there, it definitely matters. Mm-hmm. But in terms of America, Americans, their well-being has nothing to do with them. What's going on in Somalia? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Why are troops there? Uh, Washington wants to have a say. It's not because Americans are made better off. Mm-hmm. And that's never been the justification for any of these policies. Except only on the most superficial level. You know, just, just like spreading democracy, right, is, is another one. Yeah. The great democracy of Somalia. I'm curious your thoughts, uh, because speaking of, of issues that are relevant to Americans, right, we have this burgeoning drug crisis with fentanyl at the front of it and a porous southern border that, you know, seems like a lot of this is flowing across. There, there are assertions that it's Chinese fentanyl coming into Mexico and then, and then coming north into the United States and causing all kinds of problems. Uh, which Americans are seeing in their everyday lives. What is the what is your take on all of that? And is there a backstory to to that epidemic and why you know this might be a part of the broader narrative around China and U.S. relations or Western relations more sure. broadly? Sure, sure, absolutely. So the first thing I would say then is China, quote unquote, isn't making fentanyl, right? Chinese companies are making precursor ingredients and they're being smuggled out of the country, right? Just like in India, this doesn't make the news because we're trying to be nice with India because we want them to help us fight China. But a lot of these precursor chemicals are also being made by Indian companies. So just to be clear, this is not like the Chinese government or the Indian government. These are companies in these countries who see a profit opportunity, right? If no Americans were doing drugs, There'd be no market for it, right? They wouldn't be making them. But there is a huge market. And so these companies make it, and they smuggle it out of the country. Probably bribing some petty officials along the way. That's usually how that thing goes at ports or whatnot to get in and out. Then the drugs are making their way across the ocean and being processed in Mexico and in Canada. They don't talk about the fact that it's being done in Canada too, though, because you know they want Canada on side for various things they have going on in Europe related to Ukraine, for example. So, but yes, in Mexico. And because in Mexico, you can tie it into part of the the larger border crisis, right? Which is itself a result of much of failed U.S. foreign policy. Just real quick, the idea that like the drugs, the officer opened the bag of powder and caught the Chinese whiff of it and it killed him. Well, again, you know, you crack down the drug war, you make it harder for these drugs to get in and out of the country. They come in in smaller and smaller dosage. They they, they become more and more concentrated to the point that, yes, they will kill you if you... uh, you know, come into direct contact with them. It's not like these people want to kill their customers. That doesn't even make sense, right? Like, there's this whole conspiracy that, yeah, they're trying to kill Americans. No, they want Americans hooked on drugs. They don't want them to die. They're just having to find different ways to smuggle them into the country, and they're making it in stronger and stronger concentrates to, you know, move it in smaller and smaller packages while still being able... And then you're supposed to, like, cut it and stuff. Right. But it's, it's the iron speaking law to the, the border crisis... That's what you're quoting. Yes, the exactly. Law the failure of yep. prohibition. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, you exactly. create moonshine. If drugs were legal, this wouldn't even be a question. Exactly. Right. This would not even be a story. We pointed to that. Um, and, and, but one of the one of the questions that they, that's constantly raised in the space is always that there's there's a sense that and and it's funny because you actually cover the opium wars as like part of the decline of China and their identity. 
And I think there's like a, an underlying, oh, this is China's attempt to try to get Americans on the wrong side of an opium war. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. The irony yeah. of it is not lost on me, for sure. <laughs> Do you yeah. think there's validity to that to that claim that China kind of wants to get us get us back in some way? I don't think they're shedding a single tear about it. As I said, I don't. Th- I, I think that if um, the Chinese government wanted to, they could probably crack down. I'm not saying they could stop it all, just like our government can't stop it all. Governments are not all powerful. Um, but right now, the Chinese government is not interested in, in being helpful. Why would they be? They're yeah, making would very they be? few efforts yeah. to be helpful, right? Yeah. Like the United States, Washington is being super belligerent. And acting like we're already at war and threatening China all the time. So, no, they're probably not uh, going out of their way to help us out here. If Washington were behaving in a different way, probably the Chinese would be willing to make some efforts. But again, the real problem, which this is not like a judgment thing, but like because I'm, you know, a libertarian. If you want to do drugs, do drugs. But, you know, it's going to ruin your life probably. Whatever. I'm not here to preach at you. But if they're, even if the Chinese government were like, all right, we're best friends with America now. We're going to really crack down. There's billions of dollars to be made on this stuff. Mm-hmm. Someone's going to take a shot at getting it into the country. Someone's going to make it. Someone's going to try and smuggle it as long as there are people who want it. And so that's why the whole idea of prohibition and stuff, the drug war, it's been a total failure. Look what it's done to northern Mexico. The militarization of the drug war under George W. Bush. Now you've got cartels who are literally looking like armies, mm-hmm. armies. I looked into this couple a couple years ago when uh, the first rumblings of like sending the army or something to the border were going on and these drug wars. I looked into it. I mean, these guys are armed to the teeth, armored vehicles, body armor, full, I mean, night vision. Guy. I mean, th- these are like private armies now. I mean, the idea that the border patrol is going to handle this or something is, is nonsense, is nonsense. And this all happened because the Georgia B. Bush administration encouraged the Mexican government to send the army up there to fight them. And so the army came to fight them. And instead of using their drug gains to, uh, you know, buy whatever they were buying before mansions, cars, I don't know, they just started arming up. Right. Buying military equipment. And now it's to the point where it would it would be a serious, serious problem to go fight these guys, Hmm. Um, which I do not advise doing. I don't think that that's the correct answer to any of these these things. It hasn't made it better. And just just to the point about the migrant crisis, because I'm working on a book right now. Uh, I, I hope to have the first draft of it done in the next couple months, and then we'll work on editing it over the summer and maybe have it out late this year, early next year but it is U.S. foreign policy and the origins of the migrant crisis. Because if you trace where these migrants are coming from, one thing they all have in common is that the United States has taken a very deliberate interest in the internal goings-on in their country and basically smashed them to pieces. Everything from Cuba to Haiti to Venezuela to Guatemala. You have all of these uh, you know, sub-Saharan African guys showing up now. You think that's a coincidence? You think they just decided to risk life and limb, however many of them died or were captured or, you know, killed or tortured on the way over here? No, they left because the United States and their infinite wisdom decided to totally destabilize Africa over the course of fighting the war on terror. So between the war on drugs and the war on terror, both of which came from Washington, that's that's where the migrant crisis is coming from. Sure, there's bad government down there. Sure. 
And I go into it in the book that like, okay, you know, theoretically speaking, if we look at institutions and geography, I take kind of a deep dive there because it's not like U.S. foreign policy is the only problem. You know, countries like Costa Rica have been relatively successful, but U.S. foreign policy has made things much, much, much worse. And in some cases directly caused the problem. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, that's that's my answer there to that uh, on the drug war and the border problem and the opioid epidemic. And again, talk about Washington's policies again. Where are the opioid? Where's the opioid epidemic the strongest? Where did it start? It started in the Rust Belt. It was Washington's deliberate policies that deindustrialized that place in the first place, though, right? I'm told if it was the Chinese. The Institute, sto- I'm t- I told it was the Chinese oh. who stole all the jobs, though, Joseph. Come on now. Well, I, you know, I've been told that too. Um, and I have a chapter in the book where I talk about the wizardry of the Chinese. They're so powerful. They can. They, they can steal everything. They stole the jobs. Um, they hooked us all on drugs. They're very powerful, like voodoo. Um, <laughs> but where did the jobs... No, what, what's, what's the economic explanation for the decline of jobs in the West, Rust Belt, and things like that? What's the Asymmetrical alternative explanation? trade concessions. Asymmetrical trade concessions. Mm. Um, if you go on the Libertarian Institute website, type my name in, or you can find me on the author's page there. I work there. Mm. Um, just click on my, my profile, scroll through it, you'll find... Um, Trading the Rust Belt for military bases is the name of the article. It's something of that line. Something like that. Deindustrialization, trading the Rust Belt for military bases, deindustrialization and imperialism or something like that. Basically what happened was the United States needed countries to give it access uh, so that they could have military bases there. And so one of the things that they would offer was access to the U.S. market, right? And this was part of the GATT framework that was being worked out. Now, these other countries were not that interested in having American products compete there. So they were allowed to keep their tariff walls up and to keep their subsidies in place in places like like Japan, for example. Japan's a great example. In return for allowing the U.S. to have military assets there, lots mm-hmm. of military assets. So it wasn't free trade. It was highly unequal trade. Because American corporations were being discriminated against. It's just like China. China and the United States were supposed to have, you know, free trade with each other, right? Increasingly free trade. It wasn't totally free trade. But the Chinese have always heavily subsidized and protected their own market and discriminated against American corporations and workers. But Washington allowed it to happen. Now, in the case of China, it wasn't for military bases. It was because of this mistaken assumption about how history worked. And again, this all ties into the whole end of history thing. How did we win the Cold War? It was the idea that by gradually exposing countries to capitalism, it would erode the power of the communists and that gradually it would create a a prosperous upper middle class who would demand political rights and overthrow the regime and then become a good, pliant little democracy. And democracies don't fight one another. They just listen to Washington. And that was why that happened. And so I have a whole I have a whole article about it. I have a series of articles about it. And it's just the most delusional, dumb stuff. Uh, And again, you look at Washington and you have to wonder, like, is this all like in some way being done just to ensure that they have future work to do? Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) like they are so bad at it. You almost I don't actually think they're purposely screwing things up. I've met several of these people like they really passionately believe they're smart and know what to do and know how everything's going to turn out. Mm-hmm. Even though all the evidence suggests that you guys haven't won a war since World War II. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, and it's peculiar like, too because we, we blame that on China and then we also at the same time created the EPA at the exact same time. Right. Uh, Montana wasn't where we're from, where I'm from, in Helena, wasn't deindustrialized because of China. It deindustrialized because the EPA sued the smelter in town and sued all the smelters out of business. 
across Montana. Yeah. Uh, all the all the we, we stopped managing our forests, so all the lumber mills shut down because mm-hmm. Washington D.C. and then regulation. We, you can blame that on Canadians for managing the forests and now importing wood, or you can blame Washington who failed to manage our forests here when they own all the public lands. And now we have crippling huge wildfires as well. Exactly, that's a nice little all side DC's effect. fault once again, and it's and it's so frustrating to watch them blame a foreign country rather than taking responsibility for themselves. I want to give Kyle a why chance. Why would to they ever? Say, why would they ever take responsibility? Especially though, right? if, if American voters don't hold them accountable. Why? Why would they? Right. right. It's right. just like the whole Ukraine policy blew up in their faces. Is anyone mm-hmm. ever going to say, yeah, it looks like we totally miscalculated there? <laughs> no, of course not. Yeah. Was Victoria catering Newland to environmentalist concerns for votes a good idea? Yeah. No. Well, I mean, no, it wasn't, but they, they can't say that. They have to blame Canada or something, you know? Love that song. <laughs> hey, uh, Joseph, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, a term that's been kind of popularized in the lexicon lately is the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, and I think a lot mm. of it came down with... Uh, Tucker and Brett Weinstein's interview talking about the Darien Gap and these like Chinese coming through there and the development strategies that China's making in Central America. Can you go into what the Belt and Road Initiative is and kind of how we should be thinking about it? Sure. On one hand, it's it's a make work project because you have these very inefficient state firms that produce construction materials and you need somewhere for them to go. So you also have a need to print lots of you on and find some place for those to go. And so what you do is you lend them to these governments in places like Central Asia or Southeast Asia or Africa. You lend them these renminbi, these yuan. A yuan is a unit of renminbi. The currency is actually a renminbi is what it's called. You lend that to them and they have to then use it to buy materials from these state-owned inefficient corporations who employ tons of people and who are politically very powerful. These are holdovers from the the real communist (laughs) uh, period. Um, So on one hand, you have that. It's a make-work project. It's something to help keep the wheels of China's economy spinning, right? On the other hand, it is also a geopolitical project because China does not have great geography. China is very hemmed in on all sides. It's not like the United States where there's tons of navigable rivers and ocean frontage everywhere where you can get all sorts of places all at once. No. So uh, the idea here is in part to build infrastructure going across Central Asia, which is very, very tough to do. Very, very tough to do. They're trying to recreate the Silk Road there, but with high-speed rail. And they're encountering problems uh, doing building projects there in part because of... uh, well, for example, down in Pakistan, they're trying to do some work near, like, Baluchistan, and uh, some Chinese have been killed down there in, in, like, terrorist attacks. So they're encountering a lot of the same problems the Americans encounter in those places. Um, but you then have also this, this attempt to build maritime outposts. So the Chinese over the last... Mm, about 10, 12 years, they've, they've been investing in deep water port facilities that will be in friendly hands where they'll know, okay, we can send ships here. Because in an increasingly deteriorating geopolitical environment, it's not very smart. I mean, like China would love to free ride. China would love to continue to free ride and use everyone else's stuff. But at the same time, it's just not very safe to do that if Washington and its network of allies are going to be increasingly hostile towards you. Something that, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin and his uh, network uh, realized after the start of the war in Ukraine. Things that uh, they thought were safe were not. Things like central bank reserves, stuff that they thought couldn't be touched. Turns out they could. Mm. Not smart to trust anyone. 
Um, so you need to have that stuff in your own hands or in the hands of a country that you can control or, you know, occupy if need be. Um, which, again, I don't think that that's an, at all what the Chinese would like to do. I think they would like to be able to economically colonize places in the way the United States was doing 100 years ago or whatnot. But I think they've seen the folly of attempting to militarily dominate and control uh, the world the way Washington has. China's last war they fought was bloody and very inconclusive. Uh, you know, a clash with India, that sounds terrible. Again, they could... They could possibly feel provoked into doing that. They could try and solve a domestic problem that way, get rid of some of their excess young men that way. But really, they would prefer to do it economically because war is, is a very dicey proposition. It can destabilize even a, even a very firmly entrenched regime. So what they would like to do is continue to use the Belt and Road Initiative to boost demand for Chinese exports so that they can hire some of these young people off the streets. You know, unemployment among, uh, you know, 18 to 25 year olds is officially they 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 they're very sketchy with their statistics. But I mean, it's it's every bit of 20 percent, which is not good. That's very, very bad. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to unfuck the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. And that also makes sense why you would have more young people mm-hmm. leaving China and trying to come to America mm. by going to yes. Guatemala or, or, or whatever Absolutely. Central American country because there's 20% unemployment there. And, you know, in the worst years here, 8% unemployment here. So, and especially, yeah. and if you're in the black market, even lower unemployment. Yeah. I mean, and that and corroborates you, you a lot of- earlier. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that it corroborates a lot of, uh, you know, Brett Weinstein's interview, right? Talking about how so many of the people that they talked to were fleeing for economic asylum rather than political asylum. They were looking for better opportunities than they had in whatever home country they were in, which, as you mentioned before, was obviously in many cases, you know, might have been caused by U.S. interventions. Yeah. And one thing that I, I will just mention as far as like the deteriorating equity situation in China um, Again, this is this is something that's related to the increasingly negative relationship that Washington has. Like, yes, some of it is related to China's property sector, but that's been a known problem for many years. Like the the Evergrande saga started, gosh, I think like three years ago now. Was I I, I have a whole stack of newspapers over there. I keep uh, select clippings from like the business press and stuff that I think you know maybe later I'll want to look into it and. My online profiles of news clippings are just impossible to find anything in. But anyway, so, so it's not like that's new. But um, part of it, too, is the higher interest rates in the United States that you can get on bonds. You know, Jerome Powell is intimating, hey, maybe we're done with the rate hikes. Maybe some rate cuts are coming. Well, you want to lock in these these good yields while you can, which, like, I know you're laughing about government yields of this type, but, like, <laughs> yeah, this right. really might be it, yeah. uh, you know, so... Uh, they want to lock these in because some of them are primary dealers. You know, they have to buy and hold a certain amount of bonds. So if you're going to have to hold them, you might as well get them at, you know, four rather than two. Right. Um, and then part of it, too, is just fear of sanctions. Look what happened to Huawei. You know, if Washington decides to put you in their crosshairs, 
make no mistake, Washington is still the top dog. Mm. And I said in the book, I don't think China's economy is ever going to be more powerful than the United States. Pick a metric. I don't think it's ever going to be there. And certainly in terms of per capita income, much of China is still terribly, terribly poor. Um, There's still a lot of internal development that could go on inside China, but there are regional and ethnic problems there that, you know, impede that. There are geographical problems, political problems. You know, China's got plenty to deal with over the next decade plus inside China itself, rather than trying to muss about having a fight with China, having a fight with Washington, which could really ruin everything for everyone, but including the people running China. And, you know, the idea that this is the dangerous decade, Washington is making it far more dangerous than it needs to be. Um, And after that, assuming no war happens, China's population is about as old as Japan's. Hmm. If we just make it through this narrow corridor here of the next about 10 years, really, I I think the danger of conflict goes way down. I think right now we are at a very dangerous point because China's power is butting right up against Washington's power. Washington is feeling very insecure. They've been humiliatingly driven out of a bunch of failed wars that they shouldn't have started in the first place. You know, because the threat of force, the threat of power being used is always a little bit, uh, I would say, more effective than the actual deployment of power. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at what Washington has been able to accomplish in terms of when it deploys kinetic force since the end of World War II. Terrible. Name a war. It it hasn't been a very good uh, record so far. No. And I think one of the things about your book that I thought was particularly interesting is you never hear about the challenges China's facing, like what their geostrategic point of view is. Like the sympathy you're, you're, you're trying to build there is interesting because you never hear that they have an adversarial relationship with Korea and Japan and, and like these other countries and how that plays into how they see themselves as they act or as their, as their actors in the world. Uh, so could you kind of unpack that a little bit? Just like what are some of these non-American, like regional, like their neighbors, they have how many neighbors? I mean, we, we think of it like, oh, we have two neighbors, right? They have. Right, right. China's entirely surrounded right. on all sides. Uh, they fought multiple wars with these powers, been invaded by some of them, have very negative memories of recent events, even like especially with Japan. Mm. Um, fought a recent war with India and Vietnam, a clash recently with India. None of these states would be willing to host Chinese military assets. The reason they're willing to host American military assets, in part, apart from the benefits, the economic benefits, that come with them, the the asymmetrical trade concessions I spoke about earlier, is that Washington is is thousands of miles away. Washington isn't going to move in and occupy you. That's not going to happen. There's no no real danger of that. Whereas China is right next door. These countries are very protective of their sovereignty. Even countries that historically had very close ties with China. They're very protective of their sovereignty. They're perfectly happy to have great economic relations with China. And why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. It's it's the world's second largest economy, and it's going to be for a long time. Uh, you know, Matt, watch out for Mexico. Mexico's an up-and-comer. Their economy is going to be huge. They got a nice young population. I'm telling you, don't sleep on Mexico. Mm-hmm. If they can keep their government in order and, and get the situation, stop listening to Washington about what to do with the drug war and stuff, Mexico could be could be on a rip. But anyway, China's kind of in the opposite situation where like most of their gangbusters growth is behind them. Their population is graying. They're not going to be looking to fight a war, especially with a country like India, which is now more populous than China. 
And territorially, they, they do have a border conflict there up in the mountains. It's basically fighting over where the frontier is going to be. It's not an ideal place to be fighting large-scale pitched battles. I don't even think that's possible up there. Mm. Um, but they, they need to make sure they keep that under control, frankly. Um, especially because China has a relationship with Pakistan. Pakistan gets very nervous about India. India is always trying to muck about with Afghanistan. So there's a lot of... A lot of complicated politics in the region over there. And, of course, China has to be careful because they have a, a restive Muslim population who, like, not not to say, like, all of them, like, not it's not a group, but, like, there is a specific terrorist organization with links to groups that train in Afghanistan or used to train in Afghanistan and in Pakistan. And, they, and China actually shares a very tiny little border there mm. um, with those countries. And so... There's, there, it's very complicated. It's a complicated situation, and, and Americans don't know anything about it because it really do, has no impact on their well-being at all. And you know, the CIA is over there trying to arm people and get them to go into China and cause problems and stuff. Um, you know, Eric Margulies wrote about that, gosh, twenty years ago. Um, so, right, there's like, no reason to think that that kind of stuff isn't still going on. But a, as the American people, like we we shouldn't put up with that. If, if you we would, really shouldn't, if you tell the average American, hey, did you know that our C- that, that the Central Intelligence Agency was spending his time and resources training, uh, you know, Muslim terrorists to give China a hard time. They'd be like, well, why? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Why? <laughs> you know, but, it's like you're too dumb to understand. You're just too dumb. We're playing 4D chess here, right. you know. And of course, you're going to get blowback, right? You're going to get blowback. It's you know, these, and that these might be the fentanyl crisis. Trained by the right. That might be yeah, something that get, you wouldn't anticipate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you you especially with these policies where you train these guys, you send them into a country. A lot of them get killed. They feel abandoned by the United States. You know, they're armed and dangerous now. You know, this happened with the the Sunni terrorists who we were arming and supporting for years right up until they bombed the towers. Mm -hmm. You know, I look at what's going on in Ukraine right now, and I just think, man, there's a lot of extremists there with a lot of weapons and... Frankly, they got used by Washington, and like I, I know they're not all stupid, so some of them must realize that they were used in this way. Um, so I don't know; it's it's all negative stuff for Americans. Americans get nothing out of this. We get inflation and higher taxes and fewer freedoms. I'm actually doing an event over by Albion College here uh, in the next several months, and and the the topic of this talk is going to be the fake China threat and the future of American freedom, because. The growth of state power is closely tied to war making. Mm-hmm. And this is building on research done by people like Bob Higgs, Robert Higgs at the Independent Institute. He's, I believe he's retired now, but he's got great, great books about war and the growth of the state. I mean, we have to be mindful of this. Like, we're not under any threat, but by behaving as though we are and allowing Washington to behave as though we are. I read a book the other day, and it was written by a guy who sits on the Council of Foreign Relations. He teaches at Georgetown, which is like the government school for the Foreign Service. And he's just writing about how, yeah, the the, the NSA have these programs and PRISM, and what they did is they went in and they were splitting things off at AT&T and just writing about it totally matter-of-factly. Mm-hmm. Totally matter-of-factly. Like, like just to inform the next generation of, you know, American securocrats. Like, so this is how it happened. And, you know, 15 years ago, this was, you were a kook or conspiracy (laughs) theorist. And it's just being normalized in this way that like, now they just put it on the bookshelf for you to read about it if you want. Right. You know what I mean? As if it wasn't a massive civil liberties violation. Right. And 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 these massive civil liberties have just been totally normalized, you know? 
And uh, the whole TikTok thing, the whole TikTok thing, like, oh, what? The Chinese government controls TikTok and, you know, for which, first of all, there's never been any evidence of that. It's just total hearsay. Like, uh, it's total innuendo. It's not even hearsay. It's just innuendo and suggestion. And it's like, granted, I, I firmly believe that all governments are trying to spy on people, the Chinese government included. So, like, if the Chinese government were somehow backdooring TikTok data, it would be no different than the United States government taking data from Google or Facebook, except that it's so routinized here that they have compliance departments within these corporations who literally just, their whole job is handing the government data. Fusion That's centers. That's it. Yeah. And it's, and it's because they know that if they don't comply... Uh, you know, maybe it's time to break out the antitrust hammer. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's time to bust you up. But there you was, know, there they has been, how, they know how the game's played. There has <laughs> been some other kind of Chinese spying scares that look a little bit more substantial than TikTok. Like we've reported that TikTok's actually the majority of the shareholders are actually American. Um, yeah. And ironically, with a promotion of this podcast, TikTok is by far the most free platform. Like it's it's by far the one that will treat our holding of the government accountable as the least like not suppressed. Mm-hmm. But. Um, <clears throat> We do have the a couple other stories that happened, such as Chinese spy balloon incident, and and and, and you say and you kind of make the case that that was a nothing burger. So I want to hear about that. And then second, uh, the and I think this came out after your book did, which was the Cuban spy base, like Chinese mm-hmm. spy base in Cuba, and kind of is that a what how to understand that, and is that provocative or should be considered provocative of China to place a a spy base in Cuba. So the signals collection outpost, the quote unquote spy base, that it, that had been there for a while. Yeah. The 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 media just decided to report it at that point. Oh, okay. And I'd have to go back and look and see what was going on at that time, but like I'm sure there was a reason to, if I if I remember correctly, it was right around the time of Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um it was around that time. So I'm sure there was a whole confused rationale for why it came out at that time that they have a signals collection facility there. So you know, it's not like a military facility. It's it's a spying outpost. They right. have one right near the border with Russia, too. So, I mean, it's just signals collection. Like, my preference would be for the governments of, of, of all these major powers who are going to insist on dragging us into another round of war to, like, have things like listening outposts and have things like overflights of each other's country just to uh, reassure themselves that they are not about to be surprise attacked or something like that. But that's mm. neither here nor there, really, to, to what you were saying. Yes, it's true. They do have one there. It's been there since, like, I think 2017 or 2019. Mm. The second one, the Chinese spy balloon. Yeah, I mean, it started out as them saying it was nothing, and then midweek, they shifted to, nope, it's part of a secret spy ring that the Chinese are always spying on us. And maybe there's anthrax on it. Maybe there's not. Maybe it's an EMP. I don't know. We're just speculating. Maybe. You know, don't worry about it. This is an official government official telling you this. And then months later, the Pentagon, after they had sorted through all the wreckage, were like, well, we found that it was packed with over-the-counter American electronics and was not actually sending any signals to anyone. And so in the book, uh, I actually link to all the articles, including the Pentagon statements, so you can see for yourself. Mm-hmm. It was a big nothing burger, but it helped get past huge appropriations, right? Like mm-hmm. spending was jacked up a crazy amount. Not that they, I don't even think they really needed to to do that to goose the the, the Congress to get more money. Mm-hmm. But it was just, it was a bizarro year for for military appropriations, you know, like. 
Congress said they wanted this much. Biden said it wasn't enough. He wanted this much. And so Congress said, that's not even enough. We want even more. Yeah. You know, and the spy balloon was all very much a part of that media narrative. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah. It, it is I peculiar mean, that the, the I, Pentagon would be like, yeah, it was a thing and they spied on us, but it, they didn't actually send any data. And you're like, how do you know that? Like, like how do you, how do you, if you, and if you do know that, then what are we freaking out about? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. It was a very right, strange. Right. And the, the story was very inconsistent from the yeah. very start. And that was what got me looking into it was mm. because the narrative changed multiple times very quickly. And it happened over the course of just a couple of days. Right. And so it's almost like they hadn't coordinated their response yet of what we were going to say this is right. yet. It, we, right, we covered it, and, um, we, and it was because you know people don't understand the geography of Montana. So we were like, it was spotted over Billings. It's like, oh well, it was right over Malmstrom. It's like that's like hundreds of miles away. Like you know, <laughs> like that's not even close to those two things. It makes more sense to spy from yeah. the atmosphere down to Malmstrom than it does from Billings. You got a bunch of mountains right. in the way. <laughs> like it's like, what are right. we doing here? And that's the other thing. That's the other thing that I point out is like, guys. If you're sweating about the Chinese spying on us from outer, from from above us, yeah. I hate to tell you this, but they have tons of low Earth orbit satellites that could see what book is in your hand right now if you're standing outside. Like, mm. hate to break it to you, like, there's no need to be alarmed. They've always been doing this. Yeah. Like, it's not like they have some kind of mind control beam that they're sending down to you. You know. No, they only do that in Cuba. Or controlling that's, that's, Joe Biden with it or something. Well, that's interesting you mentioned that, though, uh, because, you know, they do have ways of influencing, you know, the U.S. population through media. And this is one other question that we had for you. I mean, what do you think of China's seemingly broadening influence in American media and American companies? You've got, you know, NBA uh, influence. You know, obviously, there's a huge population of NBA fans in China. What, what do you make of, of that sort of connection and their ability to influence U.S. Uh, population in that way? Well, I, I would just say this. It's it's not as though they directly control anything. It's like you said. There are lots of NBA fans in China. The NBA exists to make money. Ipso facto, if the Beijing government says they don't like something, the NBA can either say tough and stand on its principles, or it can cave for money, which is what it usually does. So it's not like it's not like they have some kind of uh, magical ability to, to control what goes on in America. They can try and compete in the pluralistic media environment. And, uh, you know, they can try and use their market as a cudgel to get private organizations to do certain things, right? Like, um, in terms of, like, what products they're allowed to offer. Like, if you want to operate in China, you have to follow these rules if you're a U.S. corporation. Or you have to engage in this technology transfer that's how a lot of the technology wound up in china by the way like is there technology theft of course there's always been industrial espionage ever since going back to the start of the industrial revolution when you had you know english savants going over and studying early mechanical devices in renaissance italy like that is just what you do you go and you try and copy successful things and replicate them um but the overwhelming majority of the technology that, that the chinese got was American companies showed up and said, whoa, we would love some access to your labor force and your markets. And they said, okay, well, you have to sign this technology transfer that gives us the intellectual property and the stuff to do this stuff. And the U.S. government signed off on this stuff. It's not like the companies just went and did it. They weren't allowed to do that. You have to run everything by the state. The Commerce Department has a whole series of, of steps you have to go to. And Washington was signing off on everything. 
Um, and then you have stuff like actual espionage, which like there's a great book called The Year of the Rat that you can read about how the Clinton administration basically knew that they were, uh, you know, stealing, uh, you know, ballistic missile technology and just, uh, you know, let it go. Um, so there is there is theft going on in espionage. It's not like governments don't do that. Governments are awful. I'm a libertarian. Like all these governments are terrible. So the Chinese government included. So just because I don't think we should, you know, provoke a war with China, you know, it doesn't mean that I love China, you know, any more than, you know, the fact that I don't think we should provoke a war with Washington where they where they impose martial law and try and kill a bunch of us means I love Washington. Like mm-hmm. I'm just trying to be pragmatic. No, um, no, you're you're a you're a, pu- kind of a puppet st- of Xi Jinping. <laughs> and we know the truth, okay? <laughs> useful idiot, right? You if you don't parrot Washington's line, you're a useful idiot. Yeah. So these libertarians be just one. being puppets of China who and Russia another area another area that people get very emotional about with China and I, I'm never really sure how much of it is propaganda how much of it is systemic with China is the uh, Uyghur genocide uh, and everything going on with that like I've seen videos come out on Twitter and things like that of like pretty harsh situations like how widespread is that what exactly is going on there like is it something that Americans should be worried about etc well it's complicated I wrote a whole <laughs> chapter in the book about it I'm trying to think of how to condense this into a few uh, reasonably succinct sound bites um, would I want to be a Muslim living in a non-Muslim country like China? No. No, I wouldn't. Are they being genocided? No. Not unless you take like the most strict definition of genocide, which is like preventing births that might have happened, right? Because you have to remember here, the Chinese had the one-child policy, right? Mm-hmm. Were they genociding their own population by forcing them to only have one child? They didn't want these Muslim populations going crazy, having tons of babies. And so they were asking them, please, will you stop having so many freaking babies? Right. And so this was basically a, an extension of the state two child policy to the rest of the inhabitants of the Chinese state. And as far as like cracking down on them, the crackdown started because of a series of terrorist attacks, which you can look up. I link them in the books. Like there were a series of pretty terrible terrorist attacks perpetrated by the oh gosh, what are they called? The the East Turkestan People's Army or something like that. Mm. I have them in the book. I don't I don't recall off the top of my head what it was because they're very peripheral to what's going on in China. Most of my um, studies are on U.S.-China relations and the economic and political and military aspects of that. Right. The the sort of the Uyghur stuff is really not my wheelhouse. But there were a ton of errors, for example, in the data that was used to make the initial claims that like, look, they've decreased births by by like you know ninety nine percent or something like that. They're wiping them out. That was incorrect. That was later retracted. Mm. Um. There, there is a lot of cultural autonomy there. Like I said, the state has tried to crack down on all the, the, the high number of births there. They definitely cracked down after a series of terrorist attacks. Um, that, that's basically what it is. It's a state-making process. Like the, the state is violent by its nature. And so what you had was the state 
pushing very hard to indoctrinate these people into what it means to be a good Chinese citizen, right? We had some camps like this one time. Uh, we actually had a bunch of these camps for various indigenous populations and hyphenated Americans, right? Right, And that's, that's just what states do. That's why states are one of the million reasons states are tyrannical, mm-hmm. is they don't want difference, they don't want autonomy, they want obedience and uniformity. And if you won't do it, they'll capture you and beat you into submission or kill you. And uh, do I think this should determine the trajectory of U.S.-China relations? Absolutely not. Nor do human rights violations factor into the U.S.'s dealings with such, uh, you know, democratic utopias as Egypt or Saudi Arabia, (laughs) uh, these bastions of human rights, right? Let's be real. The reason this is a story is because it's China. And it's a made-up, blown-up story just for the hype of it. Just to make it more just... They're Hitler, right? Mm -hmm. It can't just be that, well, their relative power is starting to bother us because it's affecting our freedom of movement in areas that we consider our area of normal operations. That's not exciting Americans to go give you trillions of dollars for the military. That's not encouraging Americans to go fight and die for Taiwan. But if you make it, uh, you know, they're barbaric genociders you know this would this was this is about civilization and freedom and stuff like you have to make it about these bigger stories right. it can't just be about petty little spheres of power so if you're if you want to get the progressive liberals on your side and hating taiwan or oh, hating yeah. china yeah. what you do is you say they abuse human rights they're doing a genocide you do the same kind of atrocity propaganda that got us into iraq war or you say they're 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 burning all this coal and all this climate change stuff like you find if you're the Taiwan lobby or if you're the military industrial complex lobby, you want to find all the angles for all the different interest groups so you can create a narrative where everyone agrees that China, because that's how you get stuff done in government. You get everyone to agree on something. Right? That's right. If, that's a great, and that's a great point. And it worked in Bosnia too. Let's not forget about Bosnia. Bosnia. Yep. So yeah, that's a great point. Absolutely. Great point. So uh, we also have the, uh, one of the things I thought was interesting Looking at the domestic politics and seeing some of their changes, you, you mentioned the, the 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 demographic change, how China's getting older. But there's also this interesting thing where, as they've gotten wealthier, there are places now that are of cheaper labor than China, even uh, whether that's mm. you, it, it, and and how that is changing the incentives for American companies, American relations, and China. So how is that affecting, you know, the the outcomes that we might see in in the future of uh, U.S. China's relations? No, you're right. That, that's a great. That's a great point. Um, so, the the cost basis of doing business in China was very cheap. That's why corporations went there. They didn't go there because China's labor force was more skilled or something like that. It's because there were lower environmental regulations and the labor was cheaper. Well, now that's going away. Chinese wages have risen. You know, the population has decreased. The amount of wealth they have has increased. The economy has diversified. There's higher paying jobs you can get. Environmentally, environmentalism is one of the few things in China where you are allowed to, like, really get out there and protest. And so the government has taken really drastic steps to try and clean things up, to really try and uh, eliminate excess pollution because it's caused a lot. And they also realize that it's not just that they, like, love the people or something like that. But they realize that cost-wise, it's causing a lot of long-term health issues that they're going to have to pay for. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the local governments are very cash-strapped, and they pay for a lot of the hukou system, which is their, like, benefit system. Don't need to get, get into that. Um, like you said, they're losing out. If you go to Walmart, one of my favorite things to do when I go to these stores is I always pick things up and look and see where they're being made. 
Um, I've always been interested in that. I am an economist, apart from being a historian and stuff. And just, you know, watching things go from having been made in, like, Taiwan and the Philippines to, like, everything's made in China to now you're seeing, like, Vietnam and India. So it's been interesting. Yeah. Yeah, China is no longer going to be the low-cost manufacturing workshop of the world. There are a number of reasons for that. One of them is cost basis. Another thing is the way they handled COVID. Mm. That freaked out a lot of corporations. I mean, you you can't have major supply chains running through China if they're going to shut down their economy on a whim and keep it shut for who knows how long. And you have no way to like really pressure their government. At least in Washington, you can just hand a senator some money or hand his pack some money or whatever loops you have to jump through these days, whatever the regulations are there, to get it working, to get things open back up or whatnot. China was closed down for a long time, way longer than anyone else. And so you have, and then you have the geopolitical concerns too, where oh my God. What if uh, the, like products that pass through certain areas of China get sanctions slapped on them? What if you're a company that sources some product from there and it gets to the United States and you're about to bring it into the country, you've got it all ready to sell, and up oh, can't come in. Sorry. You're just not going to do it. The same reason that banks don't want to do business with, with Iran and didn't want to do business with Iran even when they could for that brief window. It was because if Washington changes their mind or Washington passes some rule, if Treasury or Commerce passes some rule, it's, it's going to seriously disrupt your business. It's better just to avoid it. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, that's absolutely true. Also, the China lobby. This is my article coming at the end of this month. I've been working on this article about where's the China lobby at? You know, the China lobby in the 90s and 2000s was very powerful. It's a very powerful force for getting good relations, maintaining good relations with the U.S. and China. Because after the Cold War ended, the whole reason that we were being friends with China was to undermine the Soviet Union. That's why Washington wanted to do it anyway. Well, when the Soviet Union vanished, there was a lot of concern of, ooh, what's this going to do to our China relationship that we have? And the business lobby was huge in keeping that going. Well, the business lobby has been very quiet, very quiet. Because, number one, they've come to kind of realize that they're never going to get real un, un, uninhibited access to the China market. Mm. That China is going to protect its market, the government's going to protect its market, and it's going to protect it so that local, domestic, homegrown companies can thrive. Um, the, the, the myth of the China market. They've been chasing the China market, and the dream is dead. The mm. dream is dead in some ways. They're, they're just never going to get that access that they want. Um and they also recognize that the money is better spent lobbying to protect their position here in the United States. So you look at like why is our, our, our American social media companies and search engines so aggressive in pursuing this war against TikTok? It's because they don't want a, a competitor entering their marketplace. They want this marketplace. Right. Right. It's just like how the the um, who is it? Intel, the CEO of Intel going on the business press, being outraged that the Biden administration would give subsidies to TSMC, saying, no, only American companies should get American subsidies and protect us, give us the money. Right. And it's like, it, they're just fighting over our money. That's mm -hmm. what it is. You know, the, we're their little, we're their cattle, and they don't want to let other wolves into the pen with them, if you will. Mm -hmm. Which, like, obviously, this is like free market stuff and whatnot, and I believe there should be as many entrants as you want, but they don't think that way. What is it Peter Thiel said? Competitions for losers. That's right. Right. From zero to one. If you're a capitalist, the last thing you want is competition. You want protection. You want the government on your side. That's right. You want all so the, prof the profits. The profits go away when you get competition, right? 
Exactly. They get eroded to nothing, mm-hmm. theoretically. Mm-hmm. And so they recognize that, ooh, if we're lobbying for good relations with China, that's not going to put us on good footing with Washington. And even if we do lobby for better access in China, we're not going to get it. We haven't gotten it at this point, and we're not going to get it in the future. And so I have an article coming out about that later this month um, for anyone who's interested at the Libertarian Institute. But uh, Absolutely. Joseph, we know you're busy. We want to let you get back to it. I have one last question for you from our Discord. And this one's sort of related in in terms of the way that China is very controlling over information access uh, for their population specifically. Uh, A member of our Discord asks, I'd love to know more about how their Great Firewall has shaped the development of China as a nation from both a technological and a societal perspective. Well, on one level, it, it, it was very... Uh, effective in the early days of like commercial internet usage but my understanding is that vpns are so prevalent now that like anyone who really wants to can like get a booster phone and like cruise the regular internet Mm. so especially among the young chinese um there there is there's that interesting generational divide which like to some degree exists in all societies you know you have the great-grandparents who knew how hard it was back in the day, and they're grateful for just some peace and some bread on the table, but then their kids are a little more pampered, and they want more. They want consumer lifestyle, and they're not as into sacrifice and stuff, and the younger generation of Chinese, you know, they're really being hammered with the state propaganda and stuff, and like they're just kind of like our teenagers. They'd rather play video games than suit up to go fight the Americans for Taiwan, you know, like Xi Jinping, uh, you know, wanted to pass rules prohibiting the amount of video game time the kids could play huh. and, uh, you know, had a mini revolt on his hand and they <laughs> since sure. had to revise those <laughs> rules. So, you know what I mean? It's just like here in a way. Wow. Um, especially among the young people. So I, I think the young people are our hope in that sense is that they are not, and you know, people do get more conservative as they get older. That is a general tendency that happens, but we'll see what happens. I mean, I I definitely am, am not sad about the idea that younger generations, I have five children. I'm not upset about the fact that they might be less militarist than, and you know, nationalist than, than even, you know, myself, which I'm a libertarian, but like, I come from like a super neocon cold war family. My dad was in Vietnam. My grandpa was in Korea. My grandpa was in world war two and they were volunteers in, in all of those. Um, so like, that's where I come from. And no, it does not make me sad at all to think that like the young Chinese kids, they just want to play some video games, kill each other on Fortnite or something. Like, right. do that, kids. Do Much that. better way to uh, get those aggressive. Much uh, better. Yeah, Save feelings up. the hatred for video games and sporting events. Like, I just let it loose during the Olympics. Like, nothing brings out you know the nationals <laughs> to me like the Olympics. Speaking like, I of, love everybody, and then just let it out during sports competitions where it's pointless. You speaking know? of which, do you have a a pick for the Super Bowl? This might air afterwards. So we'll get to see if you get it right. You pulling for T Swift and Travis Kelsey or, uh, I mean, I've been a lions fan through it all. Nice. Well, and to have watched. Uh, so like for me, no, I don't like the chiefs, but San Francisco, 
I, I want no one to win. Very diplomatic answer. Taylor Swift was rigging these games, and the Chiefs are disqualified. And Brock Purdy was on True. steroids, so the winner is the Detroit Lions by default. First time ever. Roger Goodell goes to Detroit, hands it to Dan Campbell, who, in the most manly way possible, takes a literal bite out of the trophy <laughs> and doesn't lose a single two. And then you sit bolt upright out of bed. Oh my god, that was such a great treat. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. <laughs> no, I just want to see a good game yeah. i just want to see a good game this yeah. is going to be their good teams i mean i think if you look at san francisco they have the better roster they have yeah. the better roster but kc has the better quarterback so also as taylor see. swift yeah, yeah. So, true. all i know is and i want the cai asset known as taylor swift to lose yeah. So. <laughs> yeah it's it pains me to say as a seahawks fan but i think i'm rooting for the niners here i don't think i can let the cia win this super bowl that's really good. just against the intel boys that's right Joseph, thanks so much for joining us today, man. It's been a really great conversation, and we'd love to do it again sometime. Sounds great. Thank you so much, guys. Have a good one. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Human Reaction. Help us fight internet censorship by liking, commenting, subscribing, following, and sharing the show with your friends. To find us around the internet, visit linktree.com slash humanreactionpod. 